Hello all, I'm Paul, the host and true crime enthusiast of the title, offering a warm welcome to episode number 17 of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, and I thank you guys for joining me as usual. I hope everyone's doing good this week, you're all okay? I offer extra special thanks this week, because if you follow me on Twitter, perhaps you saw a few days ago that I tweeted that the podcast has passed the unreal number of more than 100,000 downloads since it began. That is absolutely incredible. Trust me when it says it proper stokes you to see something like that. It spurs you on to want to make it better and better, and that's all down to you guys. So, from the bottom of my heart... Thank you so much, guys. You're the best audience anybody could ever wish for. Wanting to make the True Crime Enthusiast podcast better is something I will always strive for. And that kind of brings me nicely onto something I've been wanting to raise for a while now. There is a Patreon page for the show upcoming very soon. And you never know, maybe a bit of bonus content also. Well, no maybe, there definitely will be. I must stress that I never started the podcast for any profit to myself. It was more for sharing my own passion and making sure that a few forgotten names no longer were forgotten and their tales were shared. And this won't change. Any support will be used to make a better show and I'm confident this will shine through. So that'll be upcoming very soon. I'll put the feelers out across the various platforms, uh, social media, imminently. This week, I've come across an amazing new podcast that I'm excited to share with you. It's a UK-based one called The Outlines Podcast. Hosted by Jess Carter, this is going to be a season-by-season recap of some unsolved cases and disappearances, with a different area of the UK focused upon each season. And the cases featured especially appeal to me because Jess seems to be very like-minded to myself. She seeks out the more unfamiliar cases, and out of the episodes that have been released to date, I've already had to scrub one off my fridge blackboard, because Outlines has already covered it expertly. I cannot recommend it enough. The research and approach to covering the cases is top rate. I mean, the host even retraces routes described in the episode, and visits scenes connected to the cases to get a better feel to make a better show. I find that so appealing and commendable, that's real dedication to me, and it brings a uniqueness that I'm sure will impress. I've already approached the host about a possible collaboration soon, to which she's happily agreed, and I think we've hit upon a good case, so watch this space. You can find the Outlines podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from, basically, and they're also on the usual social media. As always, I'll place up links in this week's show notes and I hope that you go and check it out. It is excellent. And so to this week on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Now over a number of years in the UK, there have been several murders in which the victims have been lone females of varying ages and appearance who have been attacked and brutally murdered whilst they're out walking their dogs in rural areas. And this week's episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast will focus upon four of them that are currently unsolved and I'll discuss them in chronological order. From the initial account that will be discussed here, there then lay a period of 11 years dormant and then three brutal murders all within a year. Now it's important to express here that each case has never been definitively linked with the others. Indeed, police have always resisted officially linking them and have even refuted the link in a couple of them. But could it be possible that the same person is responsible for all of them? Well, that's for you guys to make up your own minds. As usual, 
Please be advised that this week's episode contains content that the listener may find disturbing or upsetting. And with that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast as we look back at the unsolved dog walker slayings. In the English county of Somerset, a popular town with day visitors and holiday makers is the large town of Western Supermere which is a seaside holiday resort town notable as being the birthplace of Basil Fawlty himself, John Cleese, murdered TV presenter Jill Dando, and for a short time in his childhood, the home of celebrated US entertainer Bob Hope. It was also where Richie and Eddie were off to on holiday in one of my favourite ever episodes of Bottom, and is famous for the Grand Pavilion on the pier being destroyed by a massive fire in 2008. Now apart from the seaside, the area is well known for its scenic and well-kept countryside, with western woods taking up a substantial part of this, nearly 130 hectares. Now I've no idea what kind of size that is, I wouldn't like to play hide and seek in it is all I can say, because it seems massive. The area is popular for families having picnics, days out, rambling, and is very popular with dog walkers. One of the most popular areas of the woods is Walbury Woods, and 66-year-old Helen Fleet was one of the dog walkers that favoured these for a stroll. As Helen was a widow of 20 years plus, and was retired from her job as a factory inspector, she had no need to knock around in the larger house that she and her husband had shared, and had some years before begun to share a house in the Osborne Road area of Western Supermare with her younger sister, Betty Sparrow. Despite her advancing years, Helen was quite sprightly and outgoing, and her favourite pastime would be spending a lot of time walking her beloved dogs. There was a brown mongrel called Cindy, and a West Highland Terrier called Bilbo, which she'd do three, two or three times a day. March the 28th, 1987 was a Saturday, and it was late that morning, about 10.45, when Helen set off in her blue Datsun car, parking it on Walbury Hill Road near the entrance to Walbury Woods for her first walk of the day with Bilbo and Cindy. She was seen parking up here at about 10.50 that morning because it was only a mile or so from her home. It was a regular place for her to walk the dogs and it was an area that Helen knew very well. What followed in the next 90 or so minutes has always been difficult for police to piece together exactly due to the lack of clear motive. The best hypothesis available is that Helen had walked the dogs around the woods for about 30 to 40 minutes and was heading back towards where she had parked her car when she was set upon and attacked by what must have been a maniac. A scream from some distance away was reportedly heard by two people in Walbury Woods at about 12.20pm that Saturday and it was about 20 minutes later at 12.40pm that the sound of barking dogs in some distress alerted a fellow dog walker in the woods that day, Sylvia Lewis. Now by coincidence, Mrs Lewis was a friend of Helen Fleet, which made the scene that she come across somewhat more tragic and distressing. Sylvia Lewis could and was never to forget the sight that she came across that Saturday. She came into a clearing to see Cindy and Bilbo distressed and whining, territorial to the prone body of their owner. As Sylvia approached, thinking Helen had taken ill, her concern turned to panic when she saw that Helen was motionless and heavily bloodstained and beaten. In alarm, Sylvia ran to a nearby house to raise the alarm, and the occupants of the house, 
David and Hazel Davis, returned to the scene with Sylvia and discovered Helen dead. In what police later described as having been a frenzied attack, Helen had been attacked as she walked her dogs that morning, had been severely beaten and bludgeoned, repeatedly stabbed in an orgy of violence, and had even been strangled. There was no indication of her having been sexually assaulted, and Helen had not been robbed. It seems a motiveless random killing. Who does that to an elderly lady? Avon and Somerset police hit the ground running with the investigation, with the area sealed off and an in-depth fingertip search of the area for the murder weapon made, although it was never found. Meanwhile, hundreds of statements were taken from people in the local area, people who were in or around Walbury Woods at the time of the murder, and friends and former colleagues of Helen who knew her in an attempt to find any person who would wish her dead, working on the theory that a murder committed with such violence would be committed by a person who would clearly stand out as a suspect. I mean, you must seriously hate someone to go to that kind of lengths to ensure they're dead after all. But no one was found. Nobody hated or even disliked Helen. She was just an elderly lady who kept to herself, did her own thing, and was always pleasant and courteous to everyone she met. A check of all known local sex offenders and violent criminals was made, but it didn't throw up any promising suspects. More than 5,000 people were spoken to in the countless man-hours police spent making house-to-house inquiries in the local area to appeal for witnesses, and the focal point of the investigation was soon to centre upon two people. Between 12.45 and 1 o'clock that Saturday, Two youths were seen fleeing from Walbury Woods. Both were described at the time as being aged 15 to 18 years old and wearing distinctive ski jackets. Ski jackets, God, I remember the trend. It was shell suits not long afterwards. I bet a few people remember those. A few weeks after the murder, Avon and Somerset Police released a photo fit comprised by descriptions of a youth who had been seen by witnesses talking to Mrs Fleet on a previous occasion in Walbury Woods. The witnesses described the youth and Mrs Fleet talking as though they were known to each other, and interestingly, the photo fit bore strong resemblance to one of the youths that was spotted fleeing from the woods following the murder. The case was reconstructed on BBC TV's Crime Watch UK in May 1987, with several calls received, but none given the breakthrough police needed. Still can't believe you BBC, shame on you. All appeals never came to a solution to the brutal murder either, and when no arrest happened as a result of the massive inquiry, as time passed so with it grew local opinion that someone had gotten away with the brutal murder of a defenceless pensioner. But the inquiry was never closed, and on the 10th anniversary of the crime, it was reported that the advancement of DNA testing was being used to try to solve the crime. Blood samples and bloodstained clothing had been recovered at the crime scene at the time, and had originally tested negative for clues. However, It was hoped that with technological advancement and refinement of DNA profiling techniques, a breakthrough may be made and a profile obtained, but sadly it wasn't. Now three years later another avenue was explored. A TV appeal was made featuring the case in which detectives and forensic scientists who work in conjunction with the National Missing Persons site created and published a digitally aged computer-enhanced image of the original 1987 photo fit of the youth seen talking to Mrs Fleet days before she was murdered. 
It was aged to represent a person who was a youth then and would be in their late 20s to early 30s by that time. Acting on the belief that the youth was known to Mrs. Fleet, an appeal was made to the public to compare the original photo fit and the aged picture and to call in if any viewer recognised the person. It did result in a new witness emerging who said he had often seen Mrs. Fleet talking to a youth in the woods who matched this description and who played with her dogs, which supported original witness accounts. However, the identity of this person has always tantalisingly eluded police. It was not someone that Helen had mentioned to her sister or any of her friends and he was never identified. Despite the offer of a £7,000 reward at the time for information leading to the conviction of the killer, no one has yet been brought to justice, even as the 31st anniversary of the crime approaches. Skip forward now, more than 10 years, to November 1997, and to the county of Devon. Now it must be every parent's nightmare to lose a child, but what must make that worse is if that child is killed at the hands of a stranger. And if that wasn't nightmare enough, some families never get to see their child's killer brought to justice. The family of Kate Bushell knows exactly how this feels. Kate Bushell would have been 35 years old this year. She may have had a successful career, been married, even may have had a family of her own. But just over 20 years ago, in November 1997, Kate's life was brutally cut short by a maniac. There are descriptions of suspects, vehicles, but none of these have been narrowed down and identified. The village of Exwick, near the town of Exeter in Devon, is a quiet village, the type of place a family feels safe living in, a million miles removed from horror or tragedy, that type of thing only tends to happen on the telly. Or so it seemed. It was just beginning to grow dark at 4.30pm on Saturday 17th of November 1997 when Kate, who was a happy church-going 14-year-old, set off to walk her neighbour's Jack Russell Terrier dog, Gemma. This was a habit that Kate had only recently gotten into as the Bushell family didn't own a dog of their own and as Kate was an animal lover, it had worked out well for all, and it was a pastime that she did most days. As it was beginning to get dark, she promised her family that she would be no longer than 20 minutes, and set off to collect Gemma for their usual walk. The route Kate usually took, and indeed the one that she took that day, would have taken her from her house on Burrata Drive, down Exwick Hill, onto Exwick Lane, then through a gate and across a field before rejoining Exwick Lane a little bit further on. It's a simple 20 minutes or so walk that was extremely popular with dog walkers as it bordered woods and fields and it was one that Kate was very familiar and comfortable with. Now when she hadn't returned by 5pm, Kate's parents were becoming annoyed, but with each passing minute this annoyance turned increasingly to alarm. Kate was a considerate girl, not one who was prone to giving her parents cause for concern. The Bushell family was a happy one, and Kate was a happy girl hoping to study music at Oxford University. There was no question of her having run away or left home after a row, so her family thought, had there been an accident? Finally, by 6.45pm, Kate had been reported to the police as missing. Her family had driven around the local estate looking for her, but to no avail, and had finally returned home. 
While Kate's mother Suzanne waited at home so someone would be there in case Kate turned up or she rang, her father Jerry set out on foot to look for her. And what followed is the stuff of nightmares. At 7.30pm, Jerry Bushell, having ended up tracing on foot the regular route that Kate used to walk Gemma, discovered the body of his daughter lying a short distance into the field near a stile just off Exwick Lane. Kate lay flat on her back and her Reebok jogging pants were pulled down around her knees, although Kate's underwear and the rest of her clothing was intact. Her long blonde hair was splayed out and her throat had been slashed in a singular ferocious movement the pathologist's report was later to conclude. The knife that had been used was substantial and had savagely been inserted into the side of her neck and then ripped outwards and across, causing a massive and horrific wound. Police later determined that this was a kitchen-type knife that had been used, and although her jogging bottoms were around her knees, there was no sign of any sexual assault. Had the assailant been disturbed before he could do it? Kate had been killed just 300 yards from her home, and Gemma still sat whimpering near the body, but unharmed. Detectives quickly surmised that this was an opportunistic crime. It would have only taken Kate a few minutes to reach the spot where her body was found, to a place where somebody had clearly been waiting and had attacked her from behind. There was no murder weapon found at the scene, meaning the killer took it away after the murder. No weapon definitely linked to the murder has ever been discovered. The resulting inquiry was massive with police inundated with information received and reported sightings of suspicious people. A team of more than 130 officers sifted through over 4,000 calls from members of the public. They worked tirelessly, resulting in nearly 4,000 statements and 5,000 fingerprints being taken, 4,400 house-to-house inquiries completed and 3,300 exhibits catalogued. Even the dog that Kate had been walking was forensically examined. Focusing upon the method of killing, a single stab and slash movement, police examined the theory that the killer may have had military training or had worked in an abattoir at some point. So serving and former members of the armed forces who were familiar with the area were examined, as were those who had had training as butchers or worked in slaughterhouses. Vehicles were checked, known sex offenders in the locality were looked at, and thorough searches of the surrounding areas were undertaken for any blood-stained clothing or any evidence. The police covered every angle possible, but all leads seemed to lead to nothing. So was this someone known to Kate, somebody with a grudge? As detectives built up a picture of Kate's life and interests and her friends, it swiftly became clear that she was just a regular teenager with no problems or people who wished her harm. No one had a grudge against her and police were forced to conclude that the murder fell into the category of a stranger murder, where sadly the detection rate notably drops. So apart from being a stranger murder, Kate's murder seemed motiveless. She had not been sexually assaulted, but the killing being sexually motivated could not be ruled out. Kate's jogging bottoms were found at her knees, so had the offender tried to rape her but couldn't manage to? Had he been disturbed? The severity and particulars of the wound also gave police things to consider. Kate had not been stabbed, which is the more common act of killing involving a knife used as a weapon, and it takes considerable strength to rip out somebody's throat in one single slash. 
to where police looking for an offender who had committed past violent offences involving a knife or a weapon, or somebody with a mental illness, acting quite literally with the strength of a madman. Detectives also had reported sightings of several persons of interest to the inquiry. Most promisingly, they learned that a possibly bloodstained man had been spotted fleeing the scene at around the time Kate was murdered. He was 5 foot 10 to 5 foot 11 inches tall, aged between 30 to 35 years old, of medium build, brown hair and a short moustache. He was reported to have been wearing jeans, muddy trainers and a blue sweatshirt with red marks on the front which could have been blood. Also reported by at least three different women was a weirdo who had jumped out from bushes at them, startling them in the weeks leading up to Kate's murder and again in the same general area. That's a great word, isn't it? Weirdo. Just all encompasses the exact type of person, that. Now these witnesses describe the weirdo as being a scruffy man in his late 30s or 40s with unkempt salt and pepper hair he was unshaven, of thick-set build, and wearing a brown check overcoat and black boots. The possibility that someone had been living rough in the area was suggested and examined, although this line of inquiry again did not lead to any breakthroughs. Another person of interest to the inquiry was a man sighted in Exwick Lane at about 5 o'clock on the day of the murder. The man was seen stood at the back of a blue Astra van by witnesses who drove past Kate at the top of Exwick Lane, about 250 yards away. He was described as white, wearing blue jeans, aged between 30 or 40, of medium build, with dark collar-length hair and he was clean-shaven. A check of nearly 2,000 blue Astra vans in the Exeter area was undertaken, but again proved fruitless. Now, the case was featured several times on BBC TV's Crime Watch UK when it was still on air, and although the studio received calls following each appeal, it sadly did not advance the inquiry any further. It is now more than 20 years since Kate was murdered, and up to that point in 1997, the manhunt for the killer of Kate Bushell was Devon and Cornwall Police Force's most complex extensive investigation, costing within the region of half a million pounds. As previously mentioned, it still remains open and it is periodically reviewed, and whenever funding becomes available, is re-examined and re-appealed, coinciding with the anniversaries of the crime, and the hope that the killer will be caught has always been kept alive as DNA and forensic technology advance. But despite all of the actions undertaken, the thousands of man-hours spent investigating every lead possible, the countless appeals and TV reconstructions, plus a reward offered that in excess of £25,000, Kate's killer has still not been caught. Then in 1998, there were two more brutal murders, two women again, whilst both were walking dogs. On Wednesday, July 22nd, 1998, 52-year-old Julia Webb set off on one of her twice-daily walks with her golden Labrador dog, Rosie. Julia had been born and raised in the Cheshire village of Sandyway, but had married and moved away in the 1970s. She had returned to live there, though, in order to care for her mother, Irene, after Irene had suffered a stroke. And when Irene passed away, Julia had thrown herself into looking after her elderly father, Bill. She was well known and liked throughout the village, and was a familiar figure engaging in her preferred relaxation, walking her dog. 
and it was Julia's custom to walk Rosie twice a day for about 45 minutes a time down nearby Kennel Lane, which is a rural lane that borders a dense wood. Although it's popular with dog walkers and is also used by joggers, like other places of its kind, the Kennel Lane Wood was also reputed to be frequented by courting couples, drug dealers, and what could be described as strange men, which basically means flashers. So, more weirdos, really. Now, Julia set off from her home in Weaverham Road that, at 3pm that afternoon, after promising her neighbour, Bessie Woods, that she would stay away from the wood. Because of the reputation that it had, Julia had agreed. She never normally would stray very far into the woods as it was, even though it was her home area and an area she knew very well. Weaverham Road leads onto Kennel Lane after a very short distance. It's just the other side of the busy A556 Chester Road. And as Julia would have crossed the road and walked down it, the wood side would have been on her right-hand side. Now when his mother had not returned by 5.30pm that evening, Julia's concerned 26-year-old son Christopher set off to look for it on his mountain bike. It was a long time to be out for a walk, too long to have stopped chatting to anyone, and he started to become concerned that his mother had taken ill or had had an accident. Now knowing Julia's usual route for walking the dog, he set off towards Kennel Lane. Minutes later, as he approached Kennel Lane Woods, he spotted Rosie whimpering and all alone. The dog led Christopher into the nearby woodland, where he found his mother's body in bushes just 10 yards or so into the undergrowth. Police were baffled by the brutal, apparently motiveless killing. Julia's body was discovered still fully clothed, wearing a red t-shirt, striped skirt and flat shoes, although all were heavily bloodstained. Her glasses lay nearby and there were no signs of any sexual attack or robbery. Police were confident that nothing had been taken. Julia had been battered to death in a frenzied attack, seemingly where she was found, with numerous blows to her head inflicted with a blunt instrument. No murder weapon was, or has, ever been found. Despite a massive police inquiry, in which they actioned over 4,300 lines of inquiry, Police struggled for leads to this crime, an absence of suspects, and they weren't even able to establish a clear motive. Mrs Webb had no known enemies and was described by her family as placid and unlikely to engage in a confrontation. She hadn't been robbed or sexually assaulted, and no one was found who reported hearing any scream or sounds of a struggle that afternoon. Her husband, long-distance lorry driver John, and his sons Nicholas and Christopher were examined as routine and eliminated as suspects. Although it is reported that local belief and the rumour mill continued for some time afterwards that a member of Julia's family had complicity in the attack. Now, sadly, this is a common response amongst unsolved crimes. The finger of blame is often pointed at those closest to the victim. Crime Watch UK reconstructed the crime in September 1998. I don't need to say anything else because I've already said it a couple of times. You know my thoughts. And frustratingly, the public response produced crank calls and vague sightings of people seen in the area at the time, including three men who were never traced. One was described as being a middle-aged, white-haired man using a very distinctive red walking stick. Also elusive was a George Michael lookalike with designer Stubble who was driving a silver Ford Orion car. There were also reports of a 
red-faced man seen running across nearby Daleford's Lane around the time of the murder, but none of these persons of interest were ever found or came forward voluntarily. With no suspects and a lack of forensic evidence, clear witnesses and an established motive, the investigation ran to ground. Despite this extensive hunt and the case receiving massive local publicity and the offer of a £30,000 reward at the time, Julia's murder still sadly remains unsolved. But the case does remain open and like the others mentioned is reviewed periodically. On the anniversary of Julia's death in 2000, her husband John was interviewed for a local newspaper and had this to say about his late wife. She was placid, not someone who would get involved in a confrontation. I can only think whatever happened had something to do with Rosie. The dog's very friendly by nature, but also very inquisitive. It is possible she was sniffing around someone, perhaps startled them and they hit out at her. No circumstances Julia would have probably come to her aid and got involved. I can't think of any other reason why. Five years after the murder, it's reported that a 43-year-old man was arrested in Somerset on suspicion of Julia's murder, but was eventually released without charge. No one else has ever been arrested in connection with the murder. There are two quite sad postscripts to this crime as well. Tragedy was again to strike the Webb family. The first being that less than two years after his daughter's violent death, Julia's father, Bill, died, never having got over a murder, and quite possibly of a broken heart. Then 13 years after her murder, Julia's brother-in-law, Michael Webb, was himself imprisoned for the attempted murder of his wife whilst she lay in bed. Webb, who was aged 65 at the time and who had a history of mental illness, had stabbed his wife at least 12 times with a kitchen knife whilst in the grip of a manic episode. He was eventually imprisoned for 10 years. Back in the south of England now, near Truro in Cornwall, and nearly three months after Julia's murder, on the 20th of October 1998, Lynn Bryant was a 41-year-old happily married wife of Peter and mother to 21-year-old Leah and 19-year-old Erin, and again was a regular dog walker. Early that afternoon, Lynn set off to walk her lurcher dog Jay along an isolated country lane near the village of Ruin High Lanes where Lynn and her family lived and which was a less than a mile from her house. Although Ruin High Lanes is a fairly isolated area in Cornwall's Roseland Peninsula, it was a familiar route to Lynn because it was in the area where she'd spent her life and one she felt so familiar and comfortable with that she would regularly walk Jay unaccompanied the lanes are quite rural. If you have a search for the area on Google Maps or something, you'll see exactly what I mean. Mrs. Bryant set off early that afternoon, just after 1pm, wearing a brown wax jacket, blue pullover, dark jeans and brown walking boots, which is a familiar and usual dog walking outfit. At 2.40pm on 20th of October 1998, a passerby found Lynn's lifeless body in the gateway to a field bordering a road about 300 yards from the, at the time, ruined Methodist Chapel, which was again just over a mile from Lynn's house. Lynn had been brutally stabbed to death in a frenzied attack, with wounds to her neck, back and chest. Again, there was no immediate or obvious sign of a sexual attack. Lynn was not found to have been raped or had had her clothing disturbed, 
and a thorough search of the murder scene revealed no clues or forensic evidence, nor a murder weapon which was thought to have been a pocket knife about the size of a Swiss army knife blade. Defensive wounds to Lynn's hands and arms showed that she'd put up a spirited resistance against the attack and had struggled with her killer. There was also no sign of robbery. In fact, the only thing that appeared to be missing from the scene were Lynn's spectacles. They were not found with her body, and she had definitely taken them with her. She was seen wearing them that day, and always wore them to walk the dog. The resulting police inquiry into Lynn's death was codenamed Operation Grenadine, and it involved every male aged between 14 and 70 years of age that lived in Cornwall's Roseland Peninsula being interviewed and eliminated from the inquiry. Lynn's home life, her family, friends and neighbours were all examined to see if there was that one person with an obvious motive to kill her, but nothing. There were no extramarital affairs or disputes with neighbours or grudges held, nothing. Police were again forced to conclude that this was a stranger murder. When they were piecing together Lynn's final movements, witnesses who knew her had reported seeing her talking to a man at about 1.45pm on Tuesday, just under an hour before her body was found. Lynn was seen talking to the unidentified man near the ruined Methodist chapel, just 300 yards from the murder scene. He was described as being in his 30s, about 5 foot 9 inches tall, short, dark-haired, with bushy eyebrows and wearing light-coloured clothing, and despite a widespread appeal and an artist's impression of the man being released, he was never traced nor came forward. But that was it. No one had heard screams or a struggle, no one had been seen fleeing the murder scene, and Lynn's killer would have been noticed. A police spokesperson claimed that her killer would have been extensively bloodstained, covered in mud and possibly injured himself as there had been a struggle. Police canvassed the area extensively, contacting local businesses that used closed circuit television and asked them to examine their footage from the day of the murder to report any suspicious persons or vehicles that the footage may have picked up, basically trying to find the man seen talking to Lynn. They also made an appeal to trace the driver of a white van who was described as bearded, plus 50 years of age, largely built, who was seen following Mrs. Bryant's grey Sierra out of a nearby garage where she had stopped to buy milk. None of these leads or inquiries have ever led to an arrest in the case and the inquiry has remained quiet since. Police have no workable forensic traces of Lynn's killer, examinations of her clothing, her body and the scene itself never yielded any clues along these lines. They have an unclear motive for the killing and no suspects and once the initial investigation and the flurry of information had been received and worked through, the hunt for Lynn's killer ground to a halt. That seems a really tragic thing to say that is and I've already said it for the fourth time this episode now. It has stayed that way for nearly 20 years now, albeit with two macabre twists occurring years apart. Six months after Lynn was murdered, a member of the public out walking past the murder scene discovered a pair of spectacles identical to the ones missing from Lynn less than three feet from the spot where Lynn's lifeless body was discovered. The spectacles were later confirmed to be in the missing spectacles that belonged to Lynn but no forensic evidence could be gleaned from them, and the person who found them had already been ruled out of the inquiry. 
It seems inconceivable that these spectacles were missed at the crime scene searches or photographs of the murder scene less than three feet from the body. Had they been missed at the time of Lynn's murder due to incompetence, or had Lynn's killer returned to the scene to relive the killing or to fulfil some sick fantasy? Then, in 2015, self-proclaimed psychic drag queen, I know, sounds unbelievable, doesn't it? 50-year-old Tristan Reese went to the police with a remarkable story. Mr. Reese claimed that beginning in mid-1999, he had been receiving visions of Lynn Bryant after being visited by her spirit on many occasions. He had seen Lynn on the day of her murder, he claimed, and he had seen her killer. He went on to describe having a vision of seeing Lynn's killer stalking her and described a killer of slim build with grey and ginger hair having a wrinkled face and wearing a dark blue boiler suit. Mr. Reese was to say, The visions just come to me at any time. It was almost like looking at a film, but I'm right there next to her and the killer. It was always the same. Pictures of her walking down the lane and the killer following her and then he walks back to a van he's got. His boiler suit and boots were covered with blood, but you couldn't tell it was blood because it was on dark material. The description given here differs remarkably from the sketch police issued at the time of the man they wanted to trace who was seen talking to Lynn. Now of course, I don't know anybody's take on the paranormal and psychic ability, and I accept that everybody's individual beliefs and opinions will vastly differ. My view here is that no information should ever be discounted until definitively proved as false. And I do think it's always worthwhile to keep an open mind, regardless of the sensationalism of the source. I bet you can tell I'm a massive fan of the X-Files, can't you? If you follow me on Twitter, I'm sure that you already do know. All four of the cases described here remain open, and detectives from each police force concerned have liaised with each other over the years, but have never officially confirmed a connection. What do you think then? Are there multiple killers here? Or is it possible that the same man has killed at least four times, perhaps many more? The four murders span a period of just over 11 years and four different counties in parts of the UK. It is, of course, a jump to state categorically that the same person is responsible for each of these killings. And although they've been featured in an episode entitled The Dog Walker Slayings, it's for the listener to examine the possibility that the same person could be responsible. I am in no way suggesting that this is definite. As listeners to previous episodes of the podcast that have featured unsolved crimes will know, on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, we look at the facts that are known concerning the case or cases, and then see what can be estimated about any motive or killer. So is it possible that the cases are connected, or there are certainly similarities throughout? The victims in each case have been lone females, walking dogs in isolated places. All of the attacks have occurred in the daytime up to the early evening, and the majority of them in good visibility, and there has been a massive overkill of violence in each case, with some form of weapon used. The violence has been solely directed at the victim in each case. The dog or dogs have never been physically harmed in any of the attacks. The weapon used is predominantly a knife, but has also involved the use of a blunt instrument, although no weapon has ever been found in any of the crimes. There are hallmarks of these being spontaneous and opportunistic murders, 
In each case, each victim has been attacked in a place where an offender could be interrupted at any moment by passers-by, making it seem almost as if there's an overwhelming need to kill, and the offender is driven by this, so much so that that need overrides any fear of being caught. The presence of a dog, which is usually a deterrent to crime, also did not stop the killer in any case. But this is not to say that this is a disorganised killer, as the crimes do show some signs of organisation. The killer has brought and taken away any weapons used, he's left no DNA fingerprint or any useful forensic traces, and he's managed to escape undetected in each case, albeit only possibly seen fleeing in the case of the Kate Bushell murder. None of the victims has ever been raped, and apart from Kate Bushell's jogging pants being found around her knees, there has never been any evidence of any attempted sexual assault. There are no signs of any robbery, or clear signs of attempted robbery in any of the murders, with only a pair of spectacles ever being reported as taken in any of the crimes. So what is the likely motive here? It's unlikely to be robbery. There are more lucrative targets to rob in more urban areas and of course robbery would not necessitate killing the victim. A check of each victim's lives revealed no one with an obvious grudge and none were involved in anything illegal or immoral so revenge doesn't seem to be a motive. Someone hating the victim enough to kill them so savagely would also very likely have been flagged up, stood out or be known to someone police spoke to in the least. It's my opinion that a sexual motive is most likely here. The opportunistic act of killing is the offender's sexual gratification. It does not necessarily have to be obtained with full intercourse. Acting out the fantasy of killing a female may be more than enough and it's my opinion also that the offender may have returned to the scene of each murder some time after it to relive the act. I mean, this is confirmed at least once, as the killer of Lynn Bryant likely returned to the scene of the crime some months later to leave her spectacles there. We've seen countless times before that there is precedent for a killer to return to the scene of the murder to recapture the thrill. So hypothetically speaking then, let's say the same man is responsible for all. Bearing in mind, an offender will find a target victim pool that appeals to them. The target group here is the lone female. It's unlikely that it's the presence of the dog that is the linking factor, for if it was the dog in each case that was for some reason the trigger for such violence, then you'd expect the dog to be injured or killed as part of the attack. But this has not happened. Nor can the triggering factor be a particular breed of dog. All dogs concerned in each case have been of different breeds, so no, it's more likely the opportunistic appeal of a lone female in a rural area. If Helen Fleet was the first victim of the killer, it's likely that we, he was in his teens at the time. The amount of violence used, and different methods of trying to kill in that case, stabbing, battering and strangling, suggest an immature offender who's unsure of what they're doing, for want of a better expression, unrefined. Perhaps they're even acting out something they may have seen in the video nasty at the time. I mean, the Bulger case just a few years later highlighted just how much horror adolescents can commit when they have a fixation upon violence and horror that they've seen on screen. This immaturity would support the teen theory, and that would tie in with a photo fit of a suspect police have constantly appealed to trace over the years. 
So the next known murder occurs over 10 years later and is just as savage, perhaps more so because Kate Bushell was killed so brutally with a single stroke. So why is there a 10 year gap? Well there are several possibilities for this. The killer could have been imprisoned or in a hospital through this time. He may have left the country to work abroad or been serving in the armed forces. Or he may have even killed in between but by using a different method. After all, it is non-heard of for a killer to change their methods. He may have had a stable relationship that managed to keep a lid on any murderous thoughts during this period also. But something's triggered these thoughts returning. Perhaps a change in personal circumstance or the breakdown of a relationship. So eight months after Kate, another woman, Julia Webb, is killed. And this is the only killing out of the four mentioned here where a knife is not used. It's also geographically the furthest killing away in comparison to the other three, but again, this should not rule out that the possibility that the same person is responsible. It's feasible that a person may need to travel the country as a course of their employment. There's also precedent that people will kill on such work trips. For example, could the killer be a lorry driver or agricultural worker? Serial killer Robert Black abducted and killed children whilst he was on business trips delivering posters all around the country. And Peter Sutcliffe is an example that doesn't really need saying, does it? So did the killer of Helen and Kate, whilst he was in the area for work, find an opportunity on a lonely lane in Cheshire at just the point where Julia Webb was unlucky enough to be in the wrong place at the wrong time? The killer could also be a homeless person and has moved around the country in this way. Sleeping rough may also indicate why the killer is in rural areas at these times. So then it's back to Truro three months later. The most speculatively and consistently linked cases out of the four that we've detailed here are of Kate Bushell and Lynn Bryant. They're relatively close in geographic proximity, the method of killing, and is similar enough to suggest that the same man is responsible for both killings. Or at least it becomes hard to imagine that there's more than one maniac within a relatively small geographic area who has a penchant for attacking and brutally murdering women while they're out walking their dogs in an opportunistic attack, doesn't it? So working on the basis that the same person is responsible for each murder, what can be estimated about the killer? Well firstly you can safely estimate that it's a male. Statistically women are predominantly killed by male offenders and a female killer would more than likely kill another female for a more personal motive so it's a man. We can estimate his age to today to be between 40 to 50 years of age. A teenager in 1987 would fit into this age bracket by now. We can surmise that the offender is familiar with the areas that the killings have occurred. I mean, these are organised crimes, at least to the point where the offender has a weapon on their person and they can avoid being seen fleeing. And it's highly unlikely a killer will take a day trip to somewhere they've never visited to murder someone at random. Offenders offend in areas they know and are comfortable with. Familiarity with a crime scene brings with it greater chance of escape without detection, so familiarity with each crime scene means someone likely having local knowledge of each place, either having lived or worked in the area at some point. The offender goes without saying really, but they will have a previous history of offending. You don't commit a brutal murder as a first ever offence and then evade capture. If it is done as a first offence, it's more likely to be in a domestic setting in the heat of the moment during a row or when you see red. So this suggests that somewhere within the records of at least 
one of the police forces involved or the mental health services, the name of the offender is there somewhere. I would imagine for sexual offences or offences involving violence, possibly even for offences of stalking. Physically, any picture of the killer is hard to ascertain. The descriptions of persons of interest in each case, they vary enough to suggest different people are responsible. But you have to remember that different witnesses have different perceptions of the same thing. And you've also got to consider the distance they saw the person from, the length of time they saw them from, and so on. Any physical description is largely rendered useless today also due to the passage of time since the crimes. This will, however, likely have been an athletic, powerful man, at least in his younger years. I mean, it must take considerable strength to slash a throat in one swipe, mustn't it? I believe that this killer is also a trophy taker. This is definite in Lynn's case. Prescription spectacles have no other purpose to be taken except for a trophy. But just because nothing appeared to be taken in the other cases does not mean that nothing was. For example, the killer may have taken a lock of hair as a trophy. Note how Kate Bushell's hair was splayed out behind her. This is well worth considering. It may be a small enough detail to miss, but crucial in the hunt for the killer. Hair may be his particular fetish. Pretty soon on the podcast, there is a case coming up that locks of hair play a crucial part in, so it does happen. Of course, I am just hypothesising that each murder is connected, based upon similarities that can be determined between each crime. But that they are connected may not be such an impossible theory after all, as this is a view shared by others. Retired police officer Chris Clark, a name we've mentioned on the podcast previously, and one I'm sure a few listeners will be familiar with, is the author of several books on British true crime, and he studied the cases in great depth. Chris believes that at the very least, the murders of Helen Fleet, Kate Bushell and Lynn Bryant are linked by strong circumstantial evidence, and that being dog walkers is a key linking factor, with the dogs possibly the trigger for such violence. In a newspaper interview about the murders, Chris said, I believe the murders have many similarities. The mode of killing and the similar geographical area are the two most obvious links. But it is also highly unusual for a killer to choose a dog walker in each case. I believe that psychologically, this is a key element. The dogs may form an important part of the murder ritual, but he doesn't want to kill them. So Chris feels that this is highlighted by what's been suggested, the lack of harm to any of the dogs. He then moves on to highlight the lack of robbery or sexual assault in each case, and he also highlights the relatively small geographical catchment area of the three killings. From Western Supermare, it is only 61 miles to Exeter, and 148 miles to Truro. Chris further went on in the interview, These elements are unusual. They do not point to a sexual motive more towards a person suffering insanity. Geographically, the murders are within a relatively small area, and the nature of the first killing makes it inconceivable that he did not murder again. I have concluded there is strong circumstantial evidence to link them all. I feel we have one killer who no doubt is still walking around. I am very inclined to agree with Chris's observations here. I too believe this is a killer who is mentally unwell. Each is a savage crime and, as we've said, opportunistic and spontaneous, as though somebody is just flipped in each case. This explains the savagery of each killing, the lack of sexual assault or robbery, 
as though the killer has just seen something that's triggered a fury in him, although what this something could be exactly is unclear. It could be something as trivial as the dog barking at him, or one of the victims looking at him the wrong way. If it is a solitary killer, then someone somewhere may at the time have had an inkling as to his culpability, and they may have knowingly or even unwittingly covered for them. They may remember a person behaving strangely following one of the murders, or may remember a time when a family member arrived home with blood-stained clothing. It would take a person having an extraordinary degree of self-control and detachment to have committed such a horrific, brutal crime and to not outwardly display some signs of reaction, so surely somebody somewhere will have or would have had a recollection of that. Of course, this is if they are all part of a series. It's equally important to examine the possibility that each crime is unconnected and is a standalone murder. This is of course possible, after all they are separated by distance and periods of time, and as an offender escalates the period between killings would get shorter. Plus, as said, the descriptions of persons of interest in each investigation do differ, although you must account for different people having different perceptions of a person. As I outlined at the beginning of the episode, these are just observations and it's for you guys to make your own minds up with. It's perhaps easier and more comfortable to believe, however, that this is the work of just one killer, instead of four such people on the loose. There are, however, many possibilities that should be mentioned because they do apply whether these are individual crimes or the work of a series by the same offender. For example, the killer may now be dead, either of natural causes or by his own hand. It's not uncommon for offenders to be so overwhelmed by the magnitude of their actions that they take their own lives, and suicides in the areas of each murder following the crimes in the weeks after they occurred were looked at, although this again is a line of inquiry that's always drawn a blank. There is also the possibility that the killer may be in prison or a mental hospital for an unrelated crime. He may have left the country, he may have already killed again, or he may just be walking the streets somewhere, building up to doing so. Is there a dog walker slayer on the loose who was struck at least four times, perhaps many more? Most of the cases featured in this episode are relatively familiar cases in the UK, and there's a fair bit that can be researched about them, although the case of Julia Webb there's very, very scarce information available, but I have done my best with what I could find. I do invite you guys to have a read for yourselves if you're interested. There's plenty of stuff online, or a version covering each of the cases in separate posts on the True Crime Enthusiast WordPress blog. Be kind if you do head over and read them though. The Kate Bushell case and the Dogwalker Slayer are among the first ever blog articles that I wrote on there, and that may show... If you do read them or search the cases out online, then for those unfamiliar with the cases, there are pictures of each victim, artists' impressions of suspects, locations available that I always find help bring these tales that extra bit to life. I do believe that each case is a worthwhile one to highlight and cover, and they're ones that I've been planning to do ever since I began the podcast, so it's been a pleasure researching and bringing them to you today, and I'm eager to hear your thoughts and feedback on them, so please feel free to let me know whether you think I'm bang on here, or I'm way off the mark about all this. Again, it's just my own opinions here, I look forward to hearing yours. Hopefully you know by now where to discuss this, the True Crime Enthusiast Podcast Discussion Group on Facebook, or you can contact me on Twitter, Instagram, wherever you'd rather. 
Now, there's a change of plan for next week's episode. I know last week I said that I was beginning a run of unsolved cases starting with this week, and that was the plan, but chop and change, chop and change, and so next week's will be another one off the blackboard. I hope that you can join me then. Many thanks for taking the time out to join me, guys. It means the world as always. This is Paul, the true crime enthusiast, signing off and wishing you all have a good week. Be safe, and I'll catch you again very soon. Goodbye for now, all.